Well, good evening again. If we haven't met before, my name is Naman. I am uh, uh, one of the pastors here at City Reformed, and a privilege of mine to be leading us through our worship service and uh, bringing to you God's Word. If you are joining us uh, for the first time in a while at our evening service, we've been going through a sermon series through the book of Judges. Um, not always the most encouraging book, uh, but still seeing redemptive themes and the, the gospel preached uh, throughout. The last couple of weeks, we've been going through the narrative of, of Gideon. <clears throat> um, uh, two weeks ago, I preached on Judges 6 and this, and this call that Gideon received to, to deliver God's people, much like Moses did uh, out of Exodus. And then last week, Dave Snook preached on the actual battle of Gideon, right? The one that we, most of us probably remember about Gideon is, is Gideon and his 300 men, right? <clears throat> and so this week, we come to Judges chapter 8, and we see the aftermath of that all. And if you've been tracking along with us throughout the book of Judges, there's this repeated cycle, this pattern that happens, right? It's the, the people are suffering or they're being oppressed, and so they cry out to God. And, and God hears their cries, and he sends them a judge, or a ruler of some types to, to deliver them <clears throat> out of that type of bondage. And so the, the judge will do that, and there'll be a period of, of somewhat relative uh, peace or maybe even inactivity, but what happens inevitably is that, and what, what we find out is that the, the reasons for the suffering and oppression is that Israel falls back into idolatry, and so they are suffering again, and they're oppressed, and the cycle repeats over and over throughout the book of Judges, uh, and this is kind of where we are towards the tail end of, of Gideon's narrative. And I'll read Judges chapter 8 for us. If you'll follow along with me, and as we traditionally do at the end, if you would respond with thanks be to God. So Judges chapter 8. <clears throat> then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grapes of harvest at Abiezer? God has given you into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkar with, with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, <coughs> Excuse me, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the, duke, the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. 
Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and, he, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down a tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, sir, were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. And then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in the earrings of his spoil. <clears throat> and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the, land, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. And now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offering, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father at Ophrah of the Abiezrets. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made a Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. And so here we see the cycle again. We see um, oppression and, and suffering. Uh, the people crying out for a leader and God sends them Gideon and they have this amazing battle that was a testimony of God's deliverance for them. <clears throat> and in the aftermath of all that, we see slowly this slippery slope of idolatry that Israel falls back under. So what went wrong? What, what happened here? When I was a kid, one of my biggest fears whenever I would watch a movie or, or anything quickly became, man, I think the worst way to die would, would, would be to drown. Because I, I thought like, 
the feeling of, of water filling up your lungs and not being able to breathe was, was probably the worst thing that you could ever experience. And at one point I was watching this movie, ironically not about water, but it was a Total Recall, the, the older one with, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And there's a scene in there where he gets exposed to the, the Martian atmosphere and then you, you kind of see his face kind of like blow up and implode. And that was like this lasting traumatizing memory for me of like, that's what it looks like with, with life with no oxygen. And, and in a little way, in a very slow way, this is what's going on here. As Gideon is, is pursuing uh, the men of Midianites, uh, the, the Midianites, as he's kind of caring about his agenda, he is slowly running out of air. Maybe not physical air, he's still able to breathe, he's still able to pursue, yet, albeit a little bit exhausted, but he's running out of spiritual air. He's having a hard time breathing, but the thing is, he doesn't know that yet. He's pursuing, he's, he's going about his own way, and he's not realizing that he's not getting the sustenance, the, the oxygen, the life breath, that he needs. And so, as was my main point uh, two weeks ago, and as is a running theme throughout the book of Judges, Judges is not about if only the Israelites had obeyed God's laws, then they would have been blessed, but because they're sinning, they see curses. There is some truth in that, but what Judges is trying to portray here is that a life lived outside of a loving relationship with God a loving covenantal relationship with Yahweh only leads to brokenness and despair. So a life lived out of a loving relationship with the covenant God Yahweh only leads to brokenness and despair, and Judges chapter 8 is no exception to that. And the ways in which we'll see that is we'll see Gideon acting outside of God's guidance. Number two, Gideon and Israel forgetting God's deliverance. And number three, we'll see the importance of some of these names that are used to demonstrate that as well. So acting outside of God's guidance, forgetting his deliverance, and looking at the importance of some of these names. The first one, acting outside of God's guidance. And so if you remember some of the narrative from Judges chapter 6 and Judges chapter 7, we see the angel of the Lord come to Gideon and proclaim this, this big prophecy. You were the chosen one to help deliver your people out of the oppression of the Midianites. He sent the angel of the Lord. We see the very presence of God himself. And all along the way, God is speaking to Gideon. He gives him signs. He gives him assurance along the way, especially when Gideon time and time again displayed doubt and fear and uncertainty. God kind of assured him with signs and miracles. And so we saw the signs of the fleece. And when it actually came time to do battle with the Midianites last week, we saw God give them various signs of who was to participate in, in this battle and how this, the 300 men were whittled down to that number. Um, and ultimately, uh, they went to fight the Midianites, not with swords, but with empty jars and torches. Right, so all throughout the, the narrative of these past two chapters, God is very re, in a re, very real way orchestrating everything that is happening. But as I read for the last five, ten minutes of this passage, God's voice is prominently absent in what Gideon does. There's very little in which God is actually guiding Gideon to do some of the things that he is doing. We don't hear from God, if at all that much, in this chapter. 
And so we look, at, <clears throat> so we look back, uh, and one of the first things that Gideon does is to pursue these men is that he crosses over the Jordan River into the east. Right? And we might take that as sort of like a, a quick glaze over geographical indicator of, of where he is and what's going on, but Jewish listeners would have taken that would have taken another minute to consider that. Because when we consider Israelite history and know exactly what happened when the Israelites crossed into Jordan, what that meant was that after being freed from slavery in Egypt and wandering in the desert for 40 years, God had started to have his promises come to fruition and give them a land of their own by crossing over into the Jordan. Right? by giving them a home, by giving them a land of their own. And so when one of the very first things that, we do, that Gideon does that we see is that he crosses back over to the other side, that causes us to pause, to say, why is Gideon going in the reverse direction that God had led his people to good promises? It's this metaphorical sense of Gideon almost going back into slavery, almost going back into his wandering, almost going back into this lifestyle of sin. And that's the very first cue that the readers would have had as they're reading what Gideon is doing next. And so then he, he comes across these two cities, Succoth and Penuel, and as we read here, he is pursuing the Midianite kings. He's still doing it with these 300 men that he has, and they're exhausted. They're traveling on foot. They just had this immense battle where they took care of 120,000 men, and now these three men are exhausted and tired and need of food, of drink. And so they come across these two Israelite cities, and Gideon pleads with them, give us bread to eat, give us some sustenance, and, and they reject him. They say, well, you haven't really won the full battle yet, right? You're still pursuing after the two kings, so why, why would we help you? And what's going on here is, is Succoth and Penuel are, are playing this political diplomatic game, right? Well, can Gideon really fully deliver Israel from Midian? From Midian? Or, or will they kind of come back and, and resurge and take over this land? So they're, they're playing this, this gamble, and they're trying to hedge their bets, and they're saying, well, we don't really have full confidence in you, Gideon, right? And so Gideon hears this, and rather than remembering what God had just done, rather than showing them an ounce of grace, he almost comes off with this childish, immature response. He, he literally says, well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. You can almost see like this, this little child there. Well, if you're not going to do that for me, I'm not going to share my cupcake with you later. But almost to a very uh, dire and takes it to the almost end of the extreme. We see Gideon act in, in a way that is not being dictated by the Lord's grace. We see him not kind of being supported and not uplifted by the same assurance that he felt from God when he first called him, when he was in battle with him. And so then when <clears throat> Gideon ultimately does capture the, the Midian army and he brings the two kings with them, what does he do? He enacts his, he, he makes good on his word. He enacts on his punishment. He carries out his immature tantrum, this ruthless, unmerciful 
response. He punishes these two cities and even kills some of these men. So all of these things, the crossing over into the Jordan, this really um, unexpected response, all of, this, all of this begs a question. Did Gideon really need to pursue the Midian, Midianite kings? Did he really need to do this? Now, you could argue, along with probably some of the leaders of Succoth and Penuel, would say, well, you know, maybe if, if Midian retreated and they regrouped, they might have come back and re-oppressed Israel. I think there's a valid point there. But he could also argue that it was God's command to strike down the Midianites, and, and maybe it was nothing further than that. And the reasons for why we see Gideon acting on his own accord outside of God's guidance and his voice can be found in verses 18 and 19, if you would read with me there. After he captures these two kings, he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you were, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you had saved them, saved them alive, I would not kill you. And there it is. There's Gideon's motive as to why he's pursuing these men. There's a reason why we did not hear God tell him, continue to pursue these men. It's because Gideon is trying to enact his own revenge. He hears of these two kings having killed some of his brethren and countrymen at a place called Tabor. And this whole pursuit, this, this direction back into and across the Jordan, this immature tantrum, this response that he sees is for the purposes of fulfilling his own agenda, fulfilling his own anger, fulfilling his own retribution and justice. So Gideon's active pursuing and attacking of Midian is very different than the passive nature that he took just a couple chapters earlier when he was listening to God's voice and his guidance. So what does all of this mean? And I very bluntly say that it is possible to use God's gifts for our own purposes. It's possible that in the ways that God has, has gifted us, in the ways that God has blessed us and, and given us various different resources and talents, it's possible to you take those things and use them for our own agenda, for our own fulfillment. How do we know when this is happening? Or how can we discern what we are doing is in accordance with God's voice and guidance? Or if it's not, well, how present is the, is the voice of God in your life? How much are we spending time in, in prayer, in developing and building this relationship with God? So much so that we know the character of God. We know what God would ask us what to do and what not to do. Or very simply put, how is our prayer lives? How is our dependence on God as we go forth to him in prayer, knowing that he is the one that goes before us? He is the one that changes the hearts of men and women. He is the one that does this ministry of reconciliation. What is this relationship that we have with God in prayer, in reading his word, his good promises? Are we placing ourselves in places, in territories that are dangerous for us? 
if we struggle with a certain sin or temptation, are we setting ourselves up for success or for failure? Or are we crossing over the other side of the Jordan into the land of slavery? How do we find ourselves responding to and relating to other people? Certainly in, in relationships and in friendships and with our families, but also when we've particularly come across moments of, of disagreement, of, of unappreciation, of, of conflict, do we operate on this an eye for an eye, this one-to-one -one economy, or are we undergirded by an economy of grace? <clears throat> what is the true motive of why we do the things that we do? So it's very possible to, we, to take the things that God has given us and use them for our own purposes as, as Gideon does. So again, life outside of a loving relationship with God only leads to brokenness and despair. As we look, move forward in the narrative, as we look <clears throat> at other places, we'll also kind of backtrack into this little exchange that happens in verses one through three. Before crossing over to the other side of the Jordan, the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, what is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape, grapes of harvest that a, of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So what's going on here is that here's a tribe, here's a clan of Israel who is strong, who is actually known for a lot of their military success. And when, he, when, when Gideon is about to pursue the Midianites, when, when this battle of the 300 has concluded, Ephraim comes up to him and said, what happened? Why didn't you call us? Like, I think we're pretty strong. Like, why didn't you include us in this battle? And so Gideon is very diplomatic here. He's very, he's, he's almost the politician here. And he says, well, like, wh why would I need to do that? You guys have done a lot. And he's almost kind of flattering them in a way, <clears throat> to, to, to appease them, to kind of quelch this anger that they may have had. And what do we see here is that, <clears throat> excuse me, he's not responding to Ephraim the same way that he has responded to, to Penuel and Succoth, because he knows kind of where he stands. He's kind of gauging, like, man, what is going to be the outcome of this? And on both accounts, both for Ephraim and for Gideon, they forget that it was God who was the one that, was, that delivered them. And if they remember that it was God the one that called Gideon and delivered them from this battle, Ephraim's response would, wouldn't have been, why didn't you invite us? Why weren't we a part of it? But it would have been, praise God. Praise God for using you, for delivering our people from this oppression. And Gideon's response wouldn't have been to flatter or to play the diplomat, but it's to challenge them and to say, God was the one that delivered. God was the one that called. It was God's sovereignty that led us through that. And so very quickly, right after the battle, even before he pursues the Midian kings, both Israel and Gideon are starting to forget God's deliverance. They're starting to run out of air here. <clears throat> and so we go back to this narrative of, of Penuel and Succoth and this really uneasy exchange. And yes, there's a lot of harshness and un unmercy on Gideon's end, 
But we also see the side of <clears throat> these two cities um, not really remembering, not really attributing uh, God's hand in what had just happened, right? They are also playing this gambling game of like, will Gideon be able to deliver us fully or should we kind of hedge our bets a little bit and, and pull back? And so the people of Succoth and Penuel are forgetting that it was God who delivered them. And if they believe that, it would be God who would fully preserve and protect them. So the fall back into idolatry and this forgetfulness of God's deliverance was just as much the people of Israel's than it was Gideon. And we slowly slowly see this backslide. And it all culminates after Gideon has captured the Midian kings, after he has killed them in, in the blood of his vengeance, the people call to him and ask him to be their king. Verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. You pause there and you begin to think, okay, that actually sounds good. Like Gideon came up with a good response there. But what we see in the very next verses is that he takes all of the gold of the spoils from this battle, he he melts them down, and he makes an ephod for himself. He takes all the spoils of war, he takes multiple wives for himself, and he's falling back into this idolatry. He had the proper theology, the proper words to say, but his practical theology fell along the wayside. What was Gideon doing when creating this ephod? Well, an ephod was traditionally used in Old Testament law as an ornate ceremonial garment that that only the high priest would wear. And in wearing this, they would sort of help mediate the presence of God. So Gideon, in his own agenda, thought, well, God has been speaking to me all along. Why not have that continue? Why not just be the person that people will come to to offer and seek guidance for themselves? And so he wants to be at the center through which the presence of God, quote-unquote, is then mediated to the people. He wants to be the funnel through which the people experience deliverance. And therein therein lies the temptation to elevate himself over and above God, elevate this this false ephod that he has created for worship and placed himself at the center of it. And so how can we relate to this? Um, Oftentimes the most dangerous things for us isn't necessarily our failure, but is actually our success. That when we think about even this narrative, what would have been dangerous for Gideon is not that he failed, right? Let's say he pursued these kings and he was conquered and and they they captured him. That actually would not have been the most dangerous thing for him because maybe then he would have gone back to God and said, God, I messed up. Can you help us again? Can you deliver us? We, We actually need you more than I thought that we did. But actually, the most dangerous thing that happens in this passage is that in his pursuit, in his agenda, in his vengeance, is the fact that he won and that he was successful. 
And that he then began to attribute, oh, I can do this. I have done this. So then the next step is like, well, why don't I just continue to be the person who does this? Continue to be the person who delivers our people and saves them. And that's true for us. Oftentimes the most dangerous thing in our lives is not necessarily failure, but it's success. When you start to think about the temptations in our lives, certainly the temptations that we have in our lives of things that we're weak about and that we like fall into a lot of the times are dangerous. They do create patterns for sin. But I ask you this, what are some of the things that you are good at? What are some of the areas in your life that you've experienced success? And as we consider those things, how have we then in those moments forgotten to give glory back to God? Right? And it's, it's exactly why the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is the first question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So that the biggest temptation for us as men and women is that as we go along life, as we begin to study, as we develop these relationships, as we get these credentials, as we get these jobs, as we're placed in situations where we're meant to succeed, we're meant to be efficient and productive, where along the way have we stopped and paused and said, praise be to God? Or do we have the temptation to then, it's just another day, it's just another week, it's just another season of life that we're kind of continuing in our own agenda, our own success. Have we taken this rhythm to pause, to reflect, and to give glory back to God? When we ascribe to ourselves the credit and the success, we fail to give glory to God. And actually, I will go as far as to say that we are lesser versions of ourselves. We are less human when we take all of that credit and bring it inward. Because we were created to say, praise be to God, it was only by God's sovereignty and His providence and His power that I can do what I do. We can take God's gifts and abuse them, use them for our own agenda. We were created to give glory back to the Creator. And sin only conditions us to focus that inward. A life lived outside of a loving relationship with God wherein we give Him all praise and glory and honor only leads to brokenness and despair. And I'll wrap up with this as we approach the Lord's table is that <clears throat> there are a handful of names that are used in this passage then to cue us. Like, where, where is the hope? Where is the saving grace in this passage? Uh, in, in another yet uh, display of pride um, and selfishness, Gideon refers to God as the Lord, but not as the covenant Yahweh Lord, but he, but he calls him Elohim. And so we see him use this pattern of not relating to God in the personal way that he had before and, and ascribing to himself um, the, the credit, the glory. And so when it comes time to um, figure out what to do with these spoils and, and how to go about uh, the aftermath of this, 
he says here, um, sorry, I just lost my place. Verse 29, Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine was with him in Shechem and also bore him a son. And he, calls his, he called his name Abimelech. And I'll stop there. Abimelech uh, is translated in the Hebrew means, my father is king. And so we see exactly, again, what Gideon is doing here. And a couple of verses earlier, he said, I will not be your king. My son will not be your king. The Lord will rule over you. And then he goes and names his son, my father is king, trying to give credit back to himself. But the irony in that statement, too, is that by naming this son Abimelech, my father is king, there is an interpretation to say that our heavenly father is king. That this constant desire and this outcry for a savior, for a judge, for a king to rule over them has always been there. And that is to say that this covenant God, that who Gideon was slowly forgetting, this Yahweh, is the true king of Israel. So that they look forward ahead centuries later that the true Abimelech, the true king in which Israel will see is one that was not focused on carrying out his own agenda, was one who actually brought us out of the chains and of the land of slavery, was the one who would constantly uh, inundate himself in this life of prayer and reading over God's good promises. And our true king that we, we even see today is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that as we beg the question of how do we get into a place where we are not giving credit and glory to ourselves and giving it back to God is that we sit and pause and in a moment we'll sit at the table to reflect on the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ is to say that somebody else was able to let go of all his agenda, all of his splendor and majesty, and come to us, come to us in this situation of repeated cycle of sin and death and oppression and brokenness, and say, I will take that for myself, and you can have new life. And that's the beauty of this table that we see, is that in this meal, we have that very grace conferred to us. That as we remember Christ's body broken for us, as we remember his blood shed for us, we see the picture of the king that Israel desperately needed, and we have the privilege of calling our Lord and Savior. So that's where we are, and, and I invite you as you think about that, especially if you're not a Christian, to consider who that person is, who that king is, what are the areas in your life that we have forgotten to ascribe that glory back to God? How have we been using some of his good gifts and resources for our own agendas? And how does Jesus help us change that paradigm, change that perspective? Let me pray for us.